Welcome, everybody. We've got another episode coming to you today. Got uh, two topics, but we might go into more talking about Bitcoin and CRISPR. Um, I'm Gabe, uh, and we've got Aaron here. How you doing, Aaron? I'm doing good, Gabe. How are you? I'm doing just great. It seems like we just talked not that long ago. I feel <laughs> the exact same way. But you know what I remembered in between when we last recorded? I've been meaning yeah. to tell you about a new hobby that I started. Oh, or that I want to another start. Another hobby. Okay. Because when I say that it's a hobby that I started, I haven't technically done anything besides like get some of the materials. But uh, mm-hmm. I've been interested in trying out leather working. Nice. Um, nice. And the reason why I wanted to start doing this is because I have this big hoodie that I always wear when I'm working in my garage, whether that's, you know, woodworking or trying to build some kind of death machine or something. Um, it's not very durable. It stains super easy and it's really baggy. So it gets caught on stuff. So I've always wanted Mm -hmm. to cover the exterior of it in leather. So that's great. I mean, people have been doing that forever. There's gotta be a reason. This is true. (laughs) That sounds like a great plan. So far, all I've done is sew a couple of pieces of leather together and it seems all right, but I definitely don't have like the technique down, obviously, but Right. So you've actually started sewing it. Are you sewing it on a coat or are you just going to make the whole thing out of leather? Uh, I'm going to I'm going to sew it to the leather hoodie or the, oh, the, the actual the, hoodie. OK, so gotcha. then it'll also be somewhat nah. insulated. Right. I'm with you now. Yeah, I suppose even with your garage being insulated, it probably gets a little chilly out there. Well, it's not Did completely insulated. We need up? to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> we need to finish it. I forgot how far did we get? Did we I have like, do the attic? I have like one more piece to put on of sheetrock. <laughs> okay. Oh boy. But oh, it's been years now. What the heck? I've been gone. <laughs> yeah, you have been gone for years, actually. That's crazy to think. It is. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, we kind of foreshadowed on the last episode that we kind of we wanted to talk about CRISPR, and we actually started talking about that a little bit in Bitcoin too. Um, for some strange reason, they go to head or to go together in my head. <laughs> I guess we're gonna explore that a little bit more and kind of see I'm, see where it takes us. I'm really interested in that because you've mentioned it, and I can kind of see what you're going for. But I want to know what's going on in your head, and I'm sure everybody <laughs> else does too. Hopefully I can communicate this, but um, yeah. Uh, so I guess I'll, I can go ahead with the, the Bitcoin idea. Unless yeah. you want to start no, with, I, uh, I want, I, I, with, with that thought you're having, I kind of want you to start where you think you're going to give me the, the most time to get the groundwork. So when you, when you hit me with your, with your thought, I can be like, Oh damn. Okay. All right. Perfect. Um, so let's see Bitcoin. Um, so you can think of it as just kind of a fad or something that's popped up. It's been around since, I believe, 2008, uh, 2009, actually. And we've seen a lot of speculation recently. Um, the price has just shot up. I mean, it started off basically worth zero, worth nothing. And we saw it peak uh, not that long ago at like sixty-three, sixty-four thousand $64,000 Bitcoin. But what is it? I kind of want to explore that today and hopefully I can <laughs> at least explain the way I see it. Um, 
But so you can you can view it as a, a currency, I suppose, a way to transmit value between people. Um, but the underlying technology is what's really fascinating to me, and it's based in cryptography. So, and it's based on blocks. So what you have is transactions on the internet uh, or on a network between people. So say I want to send a Bitcoin to somebody else, um, that transaction, like I'm sending this, this much Bitcoin to this other person is going to be recorded. And once a certain number of those transactions take place, that is then compressed into what's called a block. So it's a chain of these transactions put together into blocks that are then compressed cryptographically um, to basically simplify it. Um, and then the network has to agree that that block is correct, that nobody's sent the same Bitcoin to somebody else, you know, double spent it is what it's called. Um, then these, these blocks get um, compressed and then going forward, that information, that block, which is converted to a hash, is then included in every single transaction going forward. So it's like a record. It's a it's a public record book of all the transactions that have taken place in the past. And a and a hash is like a, a unique like file configuration of sorts to like double check and verify. Right. And see, this is where my knowledge starts to break down a little bit and in the exact process of what they do. Um, uh, because, I mean, it's basically a, it's some sort of cryptography. I'm trying to look here and see what it's called. It's something 256. It's a protocol. Uh, it's either where they it could be SHA or RSA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So SHA 256 cryptographic cryptographic hash so it's basically taking all those transactions and um turning it into a number that's then included in all of the the continuing blocks um and this this creates the chain is what it's called the blockchain. and that's basically what crypto is and the whole idea behind it is that it's actually easy to verify uh verify this hash if you're looking at it so um but it's not easy to actually come up with the hash yeah so it looks like it creates a it says almost unique i think it's because there's probably a format that it gets used mm -hmm. but it's randomly generated it's 256 bit file that i guess you would consider as like the key to decrypt data Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And yeah, and the, the whole principle behind it is that it's it's easy to verify that this is correct, that the spending that has come before is correct. And that's that's kind of what they call the, the proof of work. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's also the other part that goes into this, which is the mining. And the mining is basically uh you're running a a specific type of computer to generate the correct hash or the best hash for each block. So there's miners out there who are running their computers, checking different solutions to a certain um, uh, 
basically find the best way to hash the previous block. And whoever comes up with that's rewarded with um, Bitcoin. Not a whole so Bitcoin. So that's not a whole. Okay. Well, actually, yes. And it changes over time. At the beginning, they were rewarded with a larger number of Bitcoin. And over time, uh, once a certain number of Bitcoin are produced, uh, the actual reward for producing another uh, block or another solution is cut in half. Oh, okay. And I'm trying to look at the exact numbers here. And so that's what they mean by like, as Bitcoin grows or really any cryptocurrency for that matter, these miners, the the process of actually doing this proof of work or running these, these verification algorithms, they get harder, right? Yes, uh, they can get harder. It depends on how quickly the next block is generated. So I think... <clears throat> it's supposedly set at about 10 minutes per block. And if that process takes longer and longer, then the um, it's actually, it gets a little bit, the solution becomes a little bit simpler. Um, and I don't know, that's, that's too technical for me for exactly what they're doing to generate that solution. Um, but they generally wanna keep that, the, the amount of time that each block is created to about 10 minutes. So when, when a Bitcoin miner finds a solution to compress that block, they're rewarded. And I think it's at 6.25 uh, Bitcoin is the reward they get as of 2020. And, and so the beauty too about this is that um, there's only a certain number of Bitcoin that can actually be created. So once that it's uh, 21 million and once that number has been created, it's not going to be possible to create anymore. Um, it's set in the code itself as the maximum number. I didn't know that. So if you're looking at, oh, say what? I didn't know that. Yeah. And that's another one of the beauties is um, with regular currency, uh, you could just always print more. So, you know, and right now, you know, the, the United States, for example, but a lot of countries around the world have just printed amazing amounts of money. And what that does is just deflate the value of every dollar that's created, where with Bit Bitcoin, you're only going to have a certain number that will ever be created. Um, so that's kind of a protection against inflation. Um I don't know what else to say here. There's a lot of ways I could, a lot of places I could go. I don't know if I've described the process, so it's understandable either. How did I do? I could go into detail. Uh, well, so I know a little bit about Bitcoin, but uh, I've never actually like done a whole in-depth look at it, but I'm just looking at some stuff. There has been concerns about hacking mm -hmm. um, the blockchain technology or... Uh, I don't know exactly what you would hack. I know I watched the YouTube video a few months ago, maybe longer, um, where somebody's hard drive had failed, and that's where they kept their their Bitcoin wallet. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess what they ended up doing was they super they super cooled the hard drive because. Or was it the motherboard, like the RAM? I, I can't remember, but the <clears throat> the actual Bitcoin information 
is for the most part encrypted everywhere on your computer and in your storage device, except for when it's being read through the RAM, it gets decrypted so that it can transfer, I believe. And I think okay. what they ended up doing was they super cooled this volatile memory chip on whatever device it was on, because once you unplug like a, you know, like RAM on your computer, there's, there's no persistent memory in there. But if you were to super cool it and unplug it, all those little transistors and switches in there get stuck in place. And then I think, oh, I think they had okay. some kind of really special tool to, uh, to try to read that data. Um, really? And I think that's probably <clears throat> more so what they're thinking of in terms of hacking. Um, of course, there's always uh, social engineering, you know, like if you don't have a good password or, you know, stuff like that, like, Hacking somebody's right. Bitcoin wallet if your password is one through five is no different than hacking your Facebook if your password's the same. So that's just probably lending to people who don't have good security uh, practices. But uh, right, yeah, that's obviously a concern because that's the that's the thing with it too is you have to have your I believe it's a sixteen um, phrase passcode oh, which wow. actually is encrypted and that's. That's basically you in the blockchain. Yeah. So if you lose that, if you lose that, you have no access. It's almost impossible to, well, it is impossible <laughs> theoretically, because that's the thing about this is it's becoming, you would basically, in order to hack the Bitcoin network and send yourself somebody else's money, you would have to do all of the work from square one and start from the beginning of Bitcoin up until now and work all that cryptography backwards to be able to change the system. So that's that's the beauty of it. Is it and the longer it goes on, the more difficult that process would be. So they actually there's some calculations and math in the, the white paper that the guy who came up with this did and he yeah he's he lays the math out which is beyond me but it just goes to show that each step in the process it just becomes exponentially more difficult to to hack or to double spend the bitcoin because that's pretty much the only way you can do it right um there isn't another possibility though if um this is all run on a decentralized network so people can have a server set up in their house um, or their laptop i think the entire um, you only need about like 150 gigabytes of storage to download all of the transactions onto your computer. Because they're compressed so, at that point. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, your computer would probably um, have to unpack that somewhere else, though. I don't know if it can read compressed data without unpacking it somewhere. But Right. Yeah. I, be I believe you actually have to download some sort of software to do that. Sure. Okay. Um, but... But the, the point being is that there it's decentralized. There's people who have copies of the all these transactions all over the world. And um, in order to spend a new block or when a new block gets created, um, that, that ledger gets sent out to the entire network and um, the network has to agree that that's correct. And they do that by verifying that... Um, uh, that hash, whatever that hash is. See, this is why it's so difficult to talk about Bitcoin because I'm not that technologically savvy. Yeah, they basically just make sure that that transaction hasn't happened already. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yep. It's like verifying with your bank um, before you wire somebody money. 
Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And it's it's unique, so you'd be able to actually check the blockchain, and it then the nodes would say, no, that's already been spent, or no, you know, it hasn't been spent yet, and you know that's kind of the agreement. But the point being is that it's decentralized. So in order to hack the network to create a block that's not agreed upon, you'd have to own uh, a majority of those nodes. So you would have to have at least 51%. I think it's higher than that. Um, and that's going to be nearly impossible because it's, it is so decentralized all around the world, but technical details aside, you know, I just talking about the, the, the principle itself. Um, it's kind of a, it's a, the proof of work concept is fascinating to me because it sounds a lot like, um, you're adding, you're adding these transactions and basically the ones that get approved are the successful ones. Um, I, I don't know. I need to find a better way to describe this. I thought I had it nailed down at the beginning, but <laughs> no, I, I think it makes um, sense, but I also have a little bit of background knowledge on it. Right. Basically the fact that it is still working and hasn't broken down and still functions. Like I could send Bitcoin to Aaron right now. Um, and in a matter of minutes for almost no money, uh, I could send him some Bitcoin. And the fact that the system, the way it's set up, and the fact that I can still do that um, just proves itself in a certain way. Uh, and it, yeah, it's like an unbroken chain going back to the beginning. So I wanted to, I had this insight that I don't know is if it's that original, but just comparing it to DNA. And I actually was able to bring something up. I just Googled that to see if anybody would come up with that idea before. But the concepts, and I can, I can read off a few of these points that are really interesting, if you can understand the way I described this so far. But Let me have it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's basically the, the first point is DNA is a lot like blockchain. Um, so it's uh, decentralized all across the world. Um, there's stored data in uh, different servers all over. So it's, if you look at it this way, it's like um, each node, you can compare it to say, let's just go with humans. But we have our own unique genetic code, but it's all come from the same source at some point. So that's, that's point one. Uh, the point two is the biological evolution is similar to the accumulation of blocks and the Bitcoin transactions. So the data is being changed slowly over time, like evolution, and additional transactions and blocks can chain, change the blockchain. So what that is, is it's like evolutionary traits. Um, you know, so with life, you would develop some random mutations and they either succeed or they don't. And when they don't, you don't pass on your genes, you die. It, well, and, and, and a mutation could be considered like some sort of immunity to like a virus or bacteria as well. It doesn't have yes. to be like a fourth pinky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Just a small mutation. Um, but overall, we, as the entire human species experiences these random mutations. But if you look at not our individual DNA, but the DNA of all human beings, 
if it's one thing. Um, only the, the successful evolutions continue to be passed on in the long term. Um, and then they've got the, the third point is proof of work is survival of the fittest. So that, that's kind of my point is that um, any single replica can be modified, mo modified, mutated, or artificially changed. And then for Bitcoin edita editing, the local blockchain, and um, through DNA with genetic engineering, um, just having children. But the proof, basically being alive, is the fact, you know, it proves the fact that our DNA has been successful because you have an unbroken chain of life and successful reproduction going back to the first life. So, you know, that's what our DNA is. It's a proof of work concept. Just the fact that we're alive right now proves that there's an unbroken chain of life that's gone back to the beginning of life. And that's, that's what I was trying to describe with Bitcoin is that the proof that it still works, um, is in and of itself, uh, the evidence that you need <laughs> that he came up with a successful idea in the beginning. So it's like the, the transmission of life through generations. It's the same thing with Bitcoin. So where I would, don't know if this makes sense, but what, yeah, go ahead. In that analogy, what would represent like the, uh, the proof of work, uh, you know, servers, is it like, is, isn't, is there uh, something in our body that recognizes when some of our DNA might, might have altered in some way? Don't we, to some extent kind of repair right so yeah like the each repair person mechanism. is kind of their own their own proof of work yeah i guess i guess looking at it from an end i'm not necessarily yeah each each individual's proof of work that there's an unbroken chain of life that's gone back to mm -hmm. the beginning and you do get mutations but you know if those mutations go too far out outside the bounds of what works, you won't be able to pass on those genes. So you're a genetic dead end, basically. Um, I could run through a few more of these points, but I don't know. It might be too far out there. Um, so then here, here's point, uh, point five is uh, rogue Bitcoin nodes are like failed DNA mutations. So this is when you get somebody who tries to hack the network. Um, they try to double spend some Bitcoin, um, but it doesn't get approved by the whole network. So the money doesn't get spent. So it's it's like a failed mutation. Um, let's see. Like good. Uh, let me read point six here. I don't know. If... Oh, so good, good DNA, DNA mutations. So then the network Bitcoin confirms good DNA mutations. So these are the ones um, where you do have, you do own the Bitcoin, you can send it to a third party and the network agrees that this is the correct thing. And then it talks about global in infrastructure, but that kind of relates to humanity as a whole. Um, and I like how they have in here, uh, predation between species. <laughs> so, they uh, basically they're saying it's akin to altcoins um, because you've heard oh. this. You know, it's not just Bitcoin that's out there, yeah. which is kind of funny. They're competing in the market for capital, you know. 
There are so <laughs> many different cryptocurrencies out there right now. Right. Um, and then uh, basically then it's just, okay, so DNA and blockchain are both recording history, essentially. So if you could decode the blockchain, you could see a list of all transactions. You could see um, who sent who, how much money, and you could look back all the way to the beginning. And it's basically kind of the same story with DNA. If you were able to um, decode our DNA and see all the mutations and the things that have been added and subtracted, um, you could kind of see the same story um, going back. So I don't know. Uh, this was a long, long-winded and probably not very eloquent <laughs> I understood description it of Bitcoin, but I, it's still a work in progress for me. <laughs> but yeah, so I own I own Bitcoin. I really believe um, in the concept, and a good start is to like to read the the white paper that the creator put out. Whoever it is, uh, anonymous person back in two thousand nine. Yeah, that people have speculated but, that they think that they know who it is, but the guy denies it but right yeah i think i've i think i read that too he's there's a guy who's in some sort of lawsuit and they're trying to discover (laughs) bring out discovery the fact that he was the creator but yeah they haven't gotten anywhere satoshi nakamoto Mm -hmm. right but but that's kind of my impression too is like if you were to take this to its logical conclusion and you could actually compare uh, Bitcoin blockchain to DNA, you, you'd have a pretty strong argument for humans having created the first artificial life. Um, and that may be taking it too far if you didn't follow the metaphor so far, but it's it fascinates me for some reason, the, the whole proof of work and that it's the same. It's very similar to what our DNA does. The fact that we're alive is a proof of work concept that our DNA has been successful since you know the first life it's like the first life is you know even still just kind of bragging to us today about what it accomplished maybe we're all just blockchains no i mean we are to some respect i mean like if you really really zoom out and take on the view that life is a simulation we're all just blocks in a chain no exactly exactly you, I mean, you could really argue that, couldn't you? <laughs> Maybe. If, if this is a simulation. Um, I wasn't just... really prepared with anything to back that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because we go to the simulation hypothesis. But yeah, you always, um, we're just you, all living on a computer. But yeah, we could. You've always, I, or not, I don't know, assuming you have, but I've always seen like random uh, cases where somebody's like, I have so many Bitcoin, but I lost my thumb drive. I know, right? Like that must be such a bummer. I, th- I thought I remember a guy, a story about a guy where he lost his thumb drive, and he even went as far to like investigate the route of where his trash goes after it leaves his house, and he's dug around in the landfill and. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah. He had some, he realized he had like billions of dollars right. worth of Bitcoin. <laughs> but in the beginning, you know, it was kind of just a joke and people would just, I think you could use it to buy pizza at some place. I don't know if it was Domino's or something like that, but 
<laughs> it's like um, almost completely worthless. Yeah, I don't know if it was that guy, but I was going to ask you if you knew what the first uh, crypto coin transaction was. I don't. Yeah, I don't it, know. Actually, some guy bought two pizzas. It was two pizzas. Yeah, okay. some, some guy in Florida bought two pizzas. You just some imagine though, you gotta. That's that's why I'm so um, reluctant to to use it to buy anything is because you never know how. I mean, it could be worthless or not. It's never going to be worthless. That's the point. Is the true value maybe inflated greatly because of all the speculation? Because people are using it as a. Uh, speculation tool just put their cash but it's never going to be worth zero i don't think just because of the amount of cryptography that's gone into it up until this point i really think that has some sort of value um so i don't think it'll ever be worthless so i don't want to spend it because i do think that it can go up and it has some intrinsic value hopefully i think recently it's gone down by like 50 percent Oh, it did. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that directly correlates with the stock market because it does it does almost mirror um, like the S&P 500. It mirrors it perfectly hmm. um, because I think when it became legitimate about like 2020, late 2019, you see a big spike. People started jumping on the bandwagon and realizing that they weren't going to lose their money in Bitcoin. You know, like it's not a fraud. It's not a scheme potentially, but so people were dumping dumping a bunch of money into it, speculating. And now that the stock market has dropped and um, interest rates are going up, I really think people are just pulling their cash out of everything. So you're going to see it drop. But I think I think long term, like 20, 30 years, I think it's going to be an amazing. I think I really think that we could um, basically have a global currency. Um, and I think Bitcoin and different technologies that are based off of the blockchain, I really think could be um, a global currency. Because right now you can send money via Bitcoin anywhere in the world and it's going to cost exactly the same as sending it to somebody, you know, right next door. Um, yeah, what do you but, call it? Uh, there's no like exchange rate. Yes, there. Yep, yeah, no exchange rate, no, no friction aside from just the there are some fees um uh, associated with sending the money but it's allegedly fewer fees than you know the transaction type that we do now with with paper money oh yeah Mm -hmm. yep especially if it's another country i mean it's going to be way way cheaper to send. it would just be nice to not have to like have like a hard drive or a thumb drive that you store it all on it would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and then it would just be kind of the same way as the Federal Reserve, which would, I guess, is like the whole against the whole point. But have have one like entity that assigns you like a wallet number, and then this is a little dystopian, but just put like a chip or like a tattoo on your arm, and when you go to the store or anywhere else, you just scan it <laughs> and you're done. Yeah, it's like an integrated yeah, debit I mean- card. You certainly, you certainly could do that. That is really, I don't know why it's scary, but it is scary. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's kind of the the idea for the future of it is there's going to be a bunch of um, financial companies that'll just piggyback off of the the actual Bitcoin blockchain. So you won't be, you know, downloading on your server and doing all that. You won't have to remember your 16 um, phrase password. It's 
it'll be, um, it'll just be an app on your phone. And I mean, there are some that do that already, like Coinbase um, and Cash App and a bunch of others where you can buy and sell Bitcoin, but those aren't, yeah, it, it gets into a whole long thing. You don't actually own that Bitcoin. You're just um, transacting with it. Um, so, well, I don't, but I, I, I don't own my oh, money. It's just in my bank account. Yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's because it's, it's centralized, but this way there'll be multiple different companies and you'll get to pick and choose and it'll kind of be democratized. If somebody, if one of the companies is really screwing you over or goes bankrupt or whatever, there'll be like 10 other companies with apps that you can just use instead. Yeah. And, and nobody can control it is, is the bottom line. They're not going to be printing more Bitcoin. So I, I really think it's going to be, it's going to revolutionize the financial system in the long run. Um, and then there's the, the mining it too. Everybody talks about how expensive it is to mine it and how much electricity it costs. But I think that can be leveraged too, um, where you can just move your big operations, your big Bitcoin mining operations to areas where electricity is cheaper. Um, and so that'll actually make our electric grid more efficient. If that makes sense. <laughs> um, hmm. And kind of. Well, so basically by by mining Bitcoin in an area where electricity is cheaper, you are sending. Um, You're spreading out the load. That, yeah. Well, that too. Um, also, you can turn the Bitcoin um, mining rigs. You can turn them off or turn them on instantaneously. So a big problem is that electricity companies have peak like high demand and low demand so they have to predict um how much energy to produce but if you could just set up a bitcoin mining rig right there by the power station you can just run that thing at the exact same output continuously and just use the excess to mine bitcoin and then you're making money um and then if the load demand goes up you know if it's a hot day and everybody's running their air conditioners you can just shut down some of those Bitcoin mining rigs and just sell all the electricity. Um, so it's a way to make the grid more efficient. And that could work in conjunction with like solar and wind. I was just going to say, get, get a bunch of solar panels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But those but. Bitcoin mining rigs take a lot more than a consumer-based, your con- consumer-sized solar panel would be able to provide continuously. Right, right. But I mean, that would if you had anything a else, solar so. farm. Yeah, yeah. If you had a solar farm, though, you know, instead of storing the power in batteries, you could just use that power. Um, you know, that's obviously not going to work for like peak demand or at night and stuff like that. But it could, you know, for conventional power plants or like hydroelectric. I think it really could make it, um, the system much more efficient. But, and I think that's, that's the overall point with Bitcoin too, is that we just have so many costs in our financial system that we're not really aware of just transaction costs and friction of money and all that, um, and inflation, um, just like hidden taxes and fees that we just don't understand, or we're not aware of on a daily basis. And this is just going to remove all of that. Just. The, I, I wish I could remember the number, but it's the amount of just friction, just moving money around the world today. It's trillions of dollars. 
And if we could just piggyback off like a Bitcoin blockchain decentralized network to move uh, money or value around. I mean, that's right there. All you have to do, if you could invest a thousand or a hundred thousand dollars in a new technology that uses Bitcoin and makes people's lives easier, you could free up some of the trillions of dollars that's being wasted right now. And, and then hope that some kind of corrupting regulatory commission doesn't come in and screw it all up. But I mean, I don't know how they would. Yeah, exactly. They, they can't. I mean, they can try. That's for sure. They can basically, they can tax you. They're trying to tax you on profits for Bitcoin when you sell it, but they can't really track you. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, because that's the, the other point is that you're anonymous. Uh, the only thing that somebody could see looking at the blockchain is that this person sent this other person anonymous, both anonymous, a certain amount of Bitcoin. But actually tracking down who owns that um, uh, that encoded username, that public key, um, you, you can't. So There's when, really not a way to do it. So when these, these uh, decentralized systems actually do like the proof of work on the chain to verify whether a Bitcoin has been used already or not, or, or, you know, in the case of like trying to do a transaction, they don't actually, it, they just, it's out there, but it's encrypted. So like, it's very difficult for somebody to actually see how many, how much Bitcoin has been spent, right? Like, in a, in a how much has been transferred, given a transfer? Um, I think that that's one of the, the only things you can see is the amount. Because that's part of the, that's part of the actual, um, the block. It says, like, you'll have a, a big encrypted uh, public key that's based off of your private key of those 16 um, phrases, and it gets encrypted and put into your public key. So all anybody can see is that public key right? and how much money you sent to somebody else. That's it. That's all that's on there. Okay. Um, so I wonder, this is going to be a weird segue, maybe. I wonder, no. if the, <laughs> I wonder if the chains in between each block can be considered what a CRISPR is. Mm. Hmm. Just to add to your DNA analogy <laughs> right that's a that's an interesting one so i didn't actually um, know what crispr was i always thought it was like the name of the company who like had the breakthrough in it or you know created it but mm -hmm. crispr is just a name that scientists gave to this specific enzyme within uh strands of dna it stands for clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats Say that five times fast. Okay. <laughs> and essentially what that's what that's saying is there's these little enzymes, which is what they these enzymes is what they dubbed the name CRISPR onto. Um, it's actually like CRISPR uh, Cas9 is like a an enzyme that's in DNA and they're they're periodically placed in between these repeating uh, short, you know, DNA segments. Okay. And I guess, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of a lot of scientists and doctors they review this particular enzyme almost. They 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 say that it acts kind of like a pair of molecular scissors, which 
which you can you can kind of create a cut right there in order to possibly drop in a different repeating uh you know dna sequence right because those those uh crispr segments they're basically junk dna right so you can cut them out without affecting the the dna of the the actual organism and then you could put something else in right um possibly i guess i don't know that much about it from my understanding i thought it was just separating a strand of dna at one of these enzymes like just call it like a you know it's almost like a a train car just unhitch it and then my understanding was that you could just place another train car in there and then the the kind of tricks the dna into repairing the mechanisms in order to introduce the the targeted changes right yeah that is interesting and I guess like they're, these, these enzymes are completely naturally occurring in, you know, human DNA, bacterial DNA, even in like, you know, livestock and agriculture. So like tomatoes, corn, other type of vegetables and fruits. Um, and they've actually been used to that extent in order to, you know, it's been applied to the food and agriculture in, in, uh, industries in order to engineer stuff like improved yield more drought tolerance, uh, alterations to nutritional properties. And I'm not sure if that's what like, uh, probably like 10 years ago ish, there was this huge thing and I'm sure there's still a lot of people were up in arms about it, but, um, just like Monsanto had like their proprietary, uh, like seeds for corn and all this other stuff. I'm not sure if CRISPR was necessarily how they did it or I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, I've never thought about it that way, I guess. Cause yeah, you do have all these genetically modified things. Mm-hmm. I, and they, yeah, they very well could have been using CRISPR to do that. Right. It, possibly, yeah. but I thought, uh, yeah, cause I know Monsanto, yeah, they, uh, we used to plant corn and soybeans. So you'd buy the, um, buy the bags of seeds and, like yeah the the actual like dna or the the seed itself is like owned like you're buying a license from the company yeah it's so weird and that's actually a pretty big issue in like really flat wide open like farmland areas because there's uh you know like the wind blows Mm -hmm. a lot in those areas because it's so flat and there's been cases where because of the wind allegedly you know this is i think what they assess happened but other farmers who don't have or who haven't have not purchased monsanto seeds were getting fined because after some sampling was taken it was found that some of their their modified crops were in their fields that's so is that is that pollination is that what that is cross-pollination i have no idea that's i bet i bet it is it's like like if you have corn or something and it tassels out in the fall or yeah um it's basically dispersing the the pollen and yeah so it would blow across to somebody else's farm who doesn't have monsanto crops and then uh the corn that grows on their crops would then be a mixture of the monsanto and the non-monsanto yeah so then if they did analysis of it oh my gosh that's insane 
<laughs> I never thought of that. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, just doing a little bit of reading that we, we have, I guess, uh, primarily like research into like this CRISPR um, stuff, um, primarily into like treating diseases and like inherited disorders and stuff. Like mm-hmm. uh, there was one case in China where they tried to use CRISPR to treat somebody's uh, HIV. Uh, it was completely mm. unsuccessful, <laughs> but they, they found that it didn't cause any harmful effects. I like the modifier, though. The... It didn't cause any harmful effects. Well, are you was admitting that... that there were effects? <laughs> yeah. Well, is that the twin thing they did? Didn't they do I... that with the twins? I don't. I'm not sure. I thought I heard about that. I think I think what they found is that it made them more intelligent or something. <laughs> oh, so good effects. <laughs> yeah. Not harmful. Just super intelligent <laughs> oh my gosh but uh That's you mentioned this before we recorded uh gene drives mm. so there have been other researchers or doctors um who voiced the the potential to use this for an application to create uh gene drives which essentially is a genetic engineering technique to increase the chances of a particular trait passing on from parent to offspring and i use parent to offspring there as like a hierarchical uh, terminology, this could be plants, it, you know, could could right. be bacteria. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be the familial uh, word that you know those words we all know, like parent and offspring. You know, mother, father, child. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think you had mentioned that, and uh, so far, what I've seen, uh, I got like four different cases here of like what applications it's actually been used for and i don't know if this is like it was turned into a practice or if this is just what they're starting to do but uh most of these are 2017 to 2018 but in 2017 uh says in april a team of researchers released uh research in the journal of science that they had programmed a CRISPR molecule to find strains of viruses such as zika uh in uh, blood serum urine and uh saliva huh Oh, also that, where did I see this? They, I think they used it during COVID-19 as well. Oh, really? As a detection. Yeah, during the pandemic, uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 system has been used to develop various diagnostic tests for the viral infection. This is reported by the BBC News. Uh, Another one, August 2nd, 2017, uh, scientists revealed in the the Journal of Nature that they had removed a heart disease defect in an embryo successfully using CRISPR. Nice. Um, January 2018, researchers announced that they may be able to stop fungi and other problems that threaten chocolate production using CRISPR. (laughs) I didn't know that was a problem. (laughs) I didn't either, but I guess. I don't know. (laughs) There's fungus in your chocolate. Uh, final example that I found, uh, April 2018, researchers upgraded CRISPR to edit thousands of genes at once. I don't, know, I don't know how they do that because from everything I'm reading, it's like it seems like such a super precise location that you need to like insert a segment of instructions. Yeah, they just did a bunch of those really specific because <laughs> I I think isn't don't they use a virus to deliver it? I think they do. 
So I, I kind of remember something about that. Like they, I think I think traditionally that's I think that's how they found out about these enzymes. I think when a virus attacks like DNA, it tries to insert itself in these uh, these CRISPR. What do we call them? Spacers, spaces. Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. like somehow they insert themselves there, but once once like a a virus of any type or bacteria gets uh, thwarted, so to speak, um, I was reading that where that virus ends up inserting itself ends up serving as like a memory bank so that when it comes up against that again, it already knows it. Right. That's, that's really fascinating to me. So yeah, I guess it would make sense that they could just insert whatever instructions they want into like the delivery system of the virus. Right. I think that, cause that's, that was my understanding of it for, um, yeah, they, they take a certain type of virus, they take the RNA out of that virus and they put the RNA in that they want mm-hmm. to have it insert. And then they infect the cell with that virus and it goes in like, that's what viruses do, right? Is they go in and, uh, clip the DNA and insert their own RNA so that that cell will produce more of the virus like inside of itself. So that if you, yeah, I guess if they just inserted, you know, a certain RNA or DNA segment that they wanted to deliver, then they just infect you with the virus and voila, it does all the work for you. I think. Uh, I, I guess there are drawbacks though. Let me, let me see how old this article is. Hmm. Uh, October 2021. That's pretty recent in terms of right. like technology like this. I mean, you know, it doesn't doesn't go from having drawbacks and ethical concerns within, you know, six months of, okay, we use it widely. But yeah, no kidding. Um, I thought I, I thought I read something now vaguely that they actually used it to treat sickle cell anemia and they did it successfully in somebody. They yeah, so they would just go in because sickle cell is just one mutation in the DNA, and they were able to just have the virus go and cut that piece out and put a non-mutated version in. And I think they were successful in treating that, which is really interesting if you think of like all the other um, DNA mutations that cause illness. let's see i don't what would i even i don't even know how to search for that (laughs) sickle cell treated by uh crispr yeah and then that that just brought up another thought too with um I was listening to something yesterday about how humans lost the ability to produce vitamin C, but a lot of other animals can actually produce that in their bodies. Um, That's why, you know, like sailors would get scurvy on their long voyages because they just wouldn't have access to fresh foods. But uh, like wet nose, specifically mammals, I guess that's the thing, like dogs or cats, their mm-hmm. nose is wet. Uh, they can produce vitamin C. And we, we do have that gene in us, but it's just been mutated to the point where it doesn't work anymore. 
You got to stop eating oranges. Yeah, we'll just think you could uh, use CRISPR and just reactivate those somehow. Yeah, and reactivate it. Put put cat DNA in our bodies. Yeah, cat DNA. Because if it's there now and it's just dormant, or maybe it's gone, I don't know, but it seems like it would be pretty difficult to figure out how to alter that to make it active again. Yeah, I would imagine you just have to cut it out and put in the correctly, but then what is the correctly right. oriented? You know, it's been mutated because we haven't needed it for a lot of our history. Just you can imagine uh, people living in trees, eating a lot of fruit. And if we ate, you know, for eating fruit, we're getting all of our vitamin C. So we just eventually lost that um, that gene. It wasn't necessary anymore. It just mutated. Uh, but how, yeah, how would you know what the correct orientation of it is? Yeah. So there's, I'm trying to figure out what exactly this company is, but there's, there's two companies. There's, uh, or is it one The they start out with saying that these researchers at labs of church and Zhang, um, they later shorthand it to church. So I think it's almost like a law firm name, you know, like Johnson, Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Church and Yang. <laughs> um, they go on to say yeah. like researchers there have said that the technology is not a hundred percent efficient. Um, oh. You may, you may like want to add in like so many, you know, targeted, uh, what do you call it? Edits. Um, mm-hmm but it may only be successful successful on some of them. And it can also create off targeted effects too. Like it's, Oh (laughs) yeah. So it might not insert itself exactly where it wants to go. Um, earlier in the research, um, they said that it's really important that like where you're trying to insert this, if it's a repeating DNA pattern that you make sure that that repeating DNA pattern is not, anywhere else as well probably for this reason like you know it goes and finds the wrong target and then that's a scary thought yeah and that that these these drawbacks these not 100 percent efficient and and off target effects could result in unintentional mutations um what could that mean? then there's the whole there's the whole ethical debate too like there's a whole section in like almost everything i read about it um um most of the things that i've read outlines uh this this anecdotal example that happened in 2018 when um i'm probably gonna murder this name but uh, i believe have at it his name was jian kui i think he was formerly a biophysicist at the southern university of science and technology in shenzhen he announced that mm-hmm. his team had edited DNA in human embryos and thus created the world's first gene-edited babies. But when he announced this, he went to he went to prison for three years and he was fined the equivalent of like five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's that's an interesting situation too, because you got to believe that China was happy about that. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, they fined him and they said they weren't and they supposedly imprisoned him, but it's like where did he get the money and he's just some rogue guy doing this? Well, if he's part of a, if he's part of a team, I would think that the people he's working for would have some kind of control over him. So they, I mean, I guess he, it says he got fined, but you would think it would be the company. Right. Yeah. It's almost like they, uh, he's a scapegoat. Yeah. 
look at this. We did this great thing, but ah, naughty, naughty scientists. Got to punish it, you. I haven't been able to find what he was actually trying to edit in, though. I that I swear it's got to be the same story. I don't think they've done it multiple times where he. That's the HIV, isn't it? No, I, this is different. It's different. So they've done it multiple times. Hmm. But this makes it sound like he was just, you know, pulling strings and trying to have fun. That other one was like, yeah, they tried to cure HIV and try to get right. treat this person. But I, you know, like I said, uh, all the information isn't there. Some of the questions I have aren't aren't necessarily answered. But uh, I guess the yeah. the the act of trying to edit, they call them uh, reproductive cells. So it's either sperm cells or or eggs. They call that mm-hmm. uh, germline editing, and that's particularly mm-hmm. the place where a lot of people start to jump on the the efficacy of it or the ethics. Right. Um, yeah, because what you down, yeah what yeah exactly what you change there can be passed down. I I wonder what's the difference between editing at that moment versus when a person's already you know twenty let's say because if that person's genes get edited at a later time in their life, don't they then still pass that on? That's a really good question. I I would imagine not because if you think of like uh, women, right? They don't they aren't they born with all of the eggs that they're ever going to produce? And I don't know if that CRISPR is that virus is actually going to get in there and change that. So I don't know unless you actually modified all the eggs that you'd actually get it to pass down to the next generation you might get it to pass down one generation no i don't know it's a really good question um yeah but i I do get the ethical concerns too just with if if there's a delineation between just editing one person's dna and having it not be passed down and then editing something where it will be passed down forever basically because you're making you're making choices for people who've never you know aren't born and all of your offspring going forward yeah i suppose so i could see that but i mean i guess that's questions like this um there was another disclaimer in the research that aside from the you know technology not being 100 percent efficient and ethics aside or not not ethics aside this is directly related to it but we have limited knowledge of the human genetics. Like we have apparently mapped it all, but if you know what a, what the what a gene or like a, a a stripe of genes or DNA looks like, it's often represented as like a, a what do you call it a helical shape. It's like a you know spinning spinning ladder. Um, we don't know what all that stuff does. Only only some of the stuff in DNA, do we know like, Oh, okay, this is that, you know, that's how they identify babies before they're born to, uh, to, you know, figure out if they're going to have some kind of like illness or syndrome that's going to be with them forever. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like with that vitamin C or that, that gene that we have, that's been mutated. What if you did fix that? but there was a reason that it mutated. 
you know, what if it has some other effects too, that, that doesn't just allow us to create vitamin C? What if it, you know, it makes us vulnerable to a specific virus that we just didn't realize. So then you go ahead and edit that in everybody thinking it's a good idea. Brings polio back. And yeah, <laughs> polio or something that we kicked a long time ago, some sort of fish virus that, you know, and kills everybody off, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. You got to start thinking about because exactly right. We, we have no, we, there's a correlation between certain parts of our DNA, our genes and what they do, but they also, there's genes that have multiple effects in the body and influence multiple different things. So it's a, it's a really, uh, you could say it's playing God, I guess. <laughs> could be good, could be bad. You just got to watch Jurassic Park, right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, some of the diseases included in, in early 2013 uh, researchers stating that they want to you know get rid of some diseases. Uh, they list off cystic fibrosis, cataracts, uh, whatever Fanconia anemia is. Hmm. It's got to be something with red blood cells. Yeah, I found that story. Um, it was what year Bone was marrow. it? Okay, bone marrow. Uh, December thirty first. No, the uh, the lady they cured of sickle cell. Oh, yeah. It's a NPR story. It looks like from December thirty first, twenty twenty one. And oh, yeah, they used CRISPR and yeah, um, cured her. So one good example anyways. So does this mean like, like everything we're reading is like very clearly researchers and doctors trying to do good, like try to get on the forefront of making cures or edits that will eliminate certain diseases that ail people. Um, could you make like an athlete? <laughs> you know, make somebody just predisposed to be like the extreme performer. It seems like you could like, I I've heard people yeah talking about designer babies. Yeah. 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 Um, I know I've heard something just, like that before. Right. And basically you could just pick out, you know, before they're born, a list of characteristics that you want them to have. It's like, oh, I want them to be six feet tall and have this color hair and whatever. Um, and in the future, uh, the very near future, it seems like you could just edit their DNA as an embryo and voila, you get, you know, a super genius, six foot tall, you know, athlete. Um, it seems like that's a possibility. It's just, yeah. I mean, what are the downsides, I guess? Was Sherlock Holmes a CRISPR baby? <laughs> if he time traveled. I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> right. Yeah, you just have to wonder what the downsides of that could be. And I, I feel like if you don't fully understand what all these genes do and the fact that there's a reason why we do have so much variation and it's not a lot. I mean, really, if it's a very, very, very small part of our 
DNA that's actually different from one another. Don't I say it's, it's like point zero one percent. It's yeah, it's got to be something like that because we share ninety eight percent of our DNA with chimpanzees, and <laughs> we're not not the same by any stretch of the imagination. So if that's two percent, then you know the differences between humans is two percent. No, I drink skim. Less. Yeah, I drink whole milk because that's what the kids like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if we just create, you know, if, 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 um, our DNA is based on what's popular or what, um, what traits we find desirable at a specific time, and that's actually passed on, those traits are passed on, then we get kind of like a homogeneous, a lot more homogeneous DNA, which when a new virus comes out, like we've seen, I mean, a, a new virus comes out every so often, it, it could affect everybody. those mutations. Yeah, everybody in the same way. It reminds me of um, uh, Star Wars, the Clone I was Wars. Out in the back of my head, I yeah, was going to interrupt you. I was going to be like, is this going to be a movie reference? <laughs> <laughs> the, isn't it the brain plague? Is what they call it. Cause in, oh, you're talking about the... Uh... Yeah, like the 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 bug looking people. Oh no no, it's not actually. It's like Star Wars canon. It's some other. It's not actually in the movies, um, but supposedly you know there's like you know because all the clones are genetically identical, so the the separatists have created a, a brain plague that affected all of them and just wiped them out. Hmm. But it's kind of like that. <laughs> Can't you know? say I've read that one. <laughs> But yeah, so it could just, it could, uh, there's so many unknowns, you know, and maybe we'll just do it and figure it out. And some people, you know, it's going to be wealthy people, right? Cause this technology is not going to be cheap. So you're going to get, you know, what if you get, if you can make your child 50% smarter or 150% smarter, I, I like to say, cause, uh, what, it's going to have like a runaway effect. Um, you're going to have wealthy people who are smarter and therefore can just, you know, we're going to separate into two different uh, species essentially. Yeah. I was going to say, it's almost kind of like, uh, have you seen the movie or it's actually a TV show altered carbon? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did. So I like remember. A, so like essentially seeing that, They've been doing it for, you know, generations uh, at the point where this show starts. But when a person dies, there's actually like a computer chip that stores like your thoughts and your personality. It's basically you in this back of this. They put it in the base of the spine. And anytime you die, like uh, I think they, they retrieve that. I can't remember what they call it. And then they store it. And it's only like if if your family puts up money to have you, they call them re-sleeved. So like the mm. actual bodies are sleeves. Um, it's mm. only if you're wealthy or somebody pays for you to get into a good sleeve. And like uh, they at this point have like bioengineered like certain sleeves or bodies to have like super fast reactions, which make them like a ideal fighter or, or I'm sure maybe there's brain power in there too. But um Generally, like, they'll just stick you in, like, a sleeve that used to be 
a homeless person with like a drug addict. So like you get into that body and then you're like, you're immediately like having withdrawals and you're just living on the streets and you don't look like yourself. You don't feel like yourself. So it, I mean, that's in a way, hilarious. like that's pretty extreme in the, like the dystopian way, but you're kind of right. Like if it's not going to be, exp- if it's going to be expensive, it's only like the really expensive people where if there are going to be options like this, not exactly like that, but um, it's going to be the wealthy who are going to be able to basically pay to win at life. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Which, you know, it's like, what do you do? What do you do? They're going to, you know, if you make it illegal, you're just going to, you're going to buy it anyways, especially, you know, the ultra wealthy are going to be able to get around the laws uh, more easily. Yeah. But I love that example. I, I, watch the show and i never put two and two together that that's like uh it's like a perfect allegory of buying indulgences yeah <laughs> it's my my favorite in that show was uh his his virtual caretaker who they made as edgar Allan poe mm-hmm. i don't know he was funny i like edgar Allan poe so tortured individual maybe he was just a happy guy and he had a good imagination but he seems like a tortured individual probably a little bit of both (laughs) yeah that show was great yeah so i mean and it's not just like uh editing our genes either that could go in uh combination with um like the neural link idea again with uh elon musk or whoever comes up with a a better or a practical solution, but just being able to increase your mental capacity with a computer, um, you get a runaway effect there too. I I thought he wanted to make it widely available. Right. Because the way I've heard him talk about it, he basically wants it to be like the replacement for a phone. Like we have internet, we have these really fast computers in our in our pants but and i'm quoting him and he's he's i wouldn't say famously but he said this in a couple different interviews the problem is that with this technology we're still um limited by bandwidth and the bandwidth he's Mm -hmm. talking about is tapping your two thumbs on your phone to send messages and retrieve information he wants all of this information to be readily available right yeah and it's one of those things where it's like a network effect too it doesn't really i mean because part of it is being able to communicate with other people just using your mind and not having to type or call somebody on the phone but no yeah i get the bandwidth idea yeah i should but I think continue continue my thought before yeah, yeah um uh so it doesn't make sense if a lot of people don't have it if it's only five people it's uh not gonna be very effective but if everybody has it then will just you know, can kind of become like a hive mind but that's a little um, crazy i've also he's taken on the view that and i think this is more likely that the neural link will be able to stimulate certain areas of the brain that it normally wouldn't be able to itself so people who might be blind or people who might mm. might have like als or something like that mm-hmm. that it would be able to assist them yeah that's huge because yeah yeah i think the first example is a long ways off but it is still fun to think about but i have i have heard him talk about and it seems a little bit more plausible when he says you know it'll be something to 
stimulate and assist with actual brain function. Right. That's already there. Yeah. You know, he's, at this point, he's not necessarily talking about making super smart people or anything like that. <clears throat> right. Yeah. I mean, because basically we're already there. Like, I mean, you said with a smartphone in our pockets, we're already um, cyborgs. We really are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, by definition, we're almost merged with technology you because can, we carry you can the thing 24 hours a day. Talk to anybody in the world almost instantly if you had their number, mm -hmm. but you can access pretty much all of the information that's publicly available. Mm -hmm. So there you go. It's the bandwidth problem is yeah. you got to search for it and read it. And <clears throat> yeah. So if you could just download it directly into your brain and just think of memories too, because our memories are so horrible. You know, we just remember kind of the emotions and certain states and vague feelings and it's unreliable. But if you just, if you can just videotape your memories and have them. Oh, there's like oh. a Black Mirror episode with that. <laughs> of course there is. That show is great. They've got so many, the killer robots, <laughs> the killer robot dogs. I think we talked about that before. Didn't we I swear I'm having flashbacks. I swear we talked about this before. Possibly. Were we talking about Boston Dynamics Spot? Yeah, that could be it. I don't know if we got there though. Next week. <laughs> yeah, next week. There we go. Boston Dynamics. You see those robots doing somersaults and <laughs> acrobatics. Opening the door for each other. Yeah, yeah. The little robot dog just walks up the stairs and turns a doorknob and <laughs> it just like flashbacks to like Jurassic Park where the raptors yeah. open the door. <laughs> oh, this isn't good. Except for my uh my failed attempt at describing Bitcoin. I know I've heard uh, quite a few people try and you know none of them have been that good, but I, I probably get like a D minus <laughs> so I understood what you were talking I about. I now understand. I understand how difficult those people, yeah. <laughs> I understand why people fail at it. It's a complicated topic. I think we had a great conversation. We'll have to talk more about the, the Boston Dynamics next time. Yeah, this has been, uh, been a good show. And um, you can uh, tell your friends about us for sure if you find us interesting, your family members. Um, just let them know about us. Uh, if you don't find it interesting, then I guess don't let them know. <laughs> but uh, Sorry, I always got to say something goofy. But uh, that's been it, folks. Um, All right. Thanks for listening, everybody.